Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. This is Eric Nemchak alongside Stephen Trinkwald. We are almost done with our 2021 team outlooks. We are continuing along with a team that wasn't very good in 20, uh, 2020, the Indiana Fever. Outlook number 11 out of 12. Uh, yes. Here we go with the Fever. They were 6-16 six and 16 last year in the bubble. That was good for 11th in the standings. They had a negative 10.2 net rating. That was also good for 11th in uh, net rating. They were not a terrible offense, though. They managed to be eighth in offensive rating, 101.6. They were terrible on defense, unfortunately. 111.8 points allowed per 100 possessions. That was the highest defensive rating of all time. Uh, Let's get into it. Where should we start with the Indiana Fever? Again, not a terrible offense, but a, a truly awful defense. Let's start with the not terrible with the offense. Once again, some pretty vanilla stuff, but there were some signs of, of growth for this team, mainly with Kelsey Mitchell. But why don't you, why don't you start with the, uh, the macro level statistics first? Sure. So they were 12th in transition frequency, uh, 9.5% transition frequency. Nobody else was below 11.5%, so a full two percentage points less they were getting out in transition uh, or at least finishing plays in transition, you know, cause anecdotally uh, it seemed like they would kind of run a decent amount when they could, but I feel like maybe they just didn't get the looks they wanted and then they would end up slowing things up. They were also 12th in efficiency in transition. The, the good, they were third in free throw attempt rate. That was obviously buoyed by Tier McCowan, but uh, Tiffany Mitchell was effective getting to the line. Kelsey Mitchell had a pretty decent year getting to the line as well. Um, back to the not so good, second highest turnover percentage in the league for the Fever. Uh, Kathleen Doyle, in her limited minutes, turned it over almost 30% of her team's possessions when she was on the floor. Alaman, for all of her promise as a rookie, had a pretty large turnover rate as well. Natalie Chanwa, Lauren Cox, Tara McCowan, all, all, all their kind of uh, bigs, for, with the exception of Dupree, kind of turned it over more than you would like from those positions. So everyone really that kind of contributed to this team with the exception of Kelsey Mitchell had a higher than you would want turnover percentage. And more, more so than that is they just didn't really have a, a ton of players that didn't turn it over, I guess, uh, except for Mitchell who had a pretty acceptable turnover rate for someone of her usage. Not elite, you know, not you know, Asia Wilson or something here, like in the high single digits, but it was, you know, fine. They were 12th in scoring from the pick and roll roller McCowan 29th percentile, but, you know, even more troubling perhaps than the just efficiency is that she only had 14 possessions finishing as a roller. Uh, Natalie Achanwa was in the seventh percentile out of the pick and roll uh, as a, a pick and roller, 17th percentile as a pick and pop player, 11th percentile rolling to the basket. And then they were obviously a very good offensive rebounding team. Uh, we can end on a more positive note and kind of the macro. Obviously that was led by Tierra McCowan, who once again, uh, for the second straight year, led the league in offensive rebounding rate. Should we go into the the kind of big picture defense stuff, or did you have anything on the offense there? Not much on the offense. Like I said, it, it seemed pretty vanilla to me. Um, one thing that I know you wanted to mention later regarding Kelsey Mitchell was that, you know, it, it seemed like she diversified her game a little bit, but we can talk about that when we talk about it. Let's go into the defense. It was, as you said, uh, historically bad. Yeah, they were... Uh, merely tied for the worst in the league numbers in terms of the transition frequency allowed, uh, but they were her 12th in uh, defensive efficiency in transition, 12th 
in half court defense as well. They put their opponents at the line a ton. They were the second worst in opponent free throw attempt rates. So just a ton of fouling. Um, obviously, a lot of times when you have a bad defense, uh, that'll lead to a lot of fouls because you're just not making the rotations in time. And that leads to not only, you know, frustration falls, but just late recovery falls where you're just not in legal guarding position and, and stuff like that. So as you will note, I'm sure they were also, uh, you know, on top of following teams a ton that didn't even come with the benefits of playing aggressively. They were worse than the league at turning teams over. They were surprisingly just an average defensive rebounding team as well. You, you would think with, you know, playing two traditional bigs all the time with McCowan playing a lot, they would be better in defensive rebounding, but not the case. They allowed the highest proportion of shots allowed at the rim by a full two percentage points. Uh, so that combined with the high free throw attempt rate is That's really very good. promising. <laughs> Not very promising at all. Uh, you know, I think it was a little bit uh, twofold there. You know, they obviously didn't guard at the point of attack very well. Um, but the the bigs that they had playing, you know, help and whose job it was to kind of cut that off, they were not very effective in those roles either. This team was 12th in defending pick and rolls. 12th in defending pick and roll ball handlers, 10th in defending the rollers, uh, and they were also 11th in defending post-ups. Mostly driven, uh, it should be said, by veterans that are no longer on this team, those that low post-up numbers. Uh, but McCowan was also not very good. But, you know, she had a low efficiency, but it's not like teams are just kind of throwing it on the block to go against McCowan a ton. But when they did, uh, they scored pretty well. So um, where should we start in terms of I guess, uh, player evaluations, uh, individual performances the last year? Uh, we could start with the good. Kelsey Mitchell, like I said, she had a career year, like, by far. We went into the season, you know, like, expecting her to maybe diversify her shot selection a little bit, get out and transition a little bit more, and just be more efficient. Um, and for the most part, she definitely did that. She really did. It was a great season, I think. And um, I think, you know, a borderline all WNBA second team type season, uh, I don't think I had her on my team, but she was definitely in consideration when I was kind of picking those teams that there. And, you know, like I said before, like this was not a great offense or even a good offense, but it was an okay offense. And they were a terrible offense anytime Kelsey Mitchell was not on the floor. And they have, for the most part on this roster, like other offensive-minded players. You know, it's not like Kelsey Mitchell plays with a bunch of defenders who are not supposed to be able to score. Like this is a roster full of purportedly Clearly, because like looking at the defensive numbers. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, so... Uh, but they had a, a 103 offensive rating when she was on the court, 90 offensive rating when she was off the court. And her individually, you know, she had a dramatically improved season from two, her first season finishing over 40% from two. Like the volume of attempts she was able to kind of get at the rim, that didn't really change too much. You know, she was kind of getting at the same amount, but her finishing was really, really improved. She improved as a uh, a pick-and-roll scorer went from being the 35th percentile the previous season as a pick-and-roll scorer to the 85th percentile. And, you know, the most, uh, not the most, but one of the most encouraging things is just how she was able to diversify her three-point looks. Like, it wasn't just dribble pull-ups. You know, she she went from finishing plays coming off screens on just 3.5% of her possessions in 2019 to almost 17% of her possessions in 2020. So, uh, and she was more effective doing it too. You know what I mean? She was over a point per possession on those uh, 78th percentile in 2020. Obviously still incredible as a, just a, a catch and shoot player as well. 1.3 points per possession as a catch and shoot player. She was able to cut down on her 
uh, frequency from you know the longest twos, which is always good. And we didn't see the the improved playmaking. Right, that was kind of the one thing I think, at least for for my evaluation and mm. you know defense. But that to me that doesn't really matter as much for for her position and kind of what her role is is just her being able to kind of uh, reliably create good offense for other players. Like I think she's still maybe uh, a little underappreciated in that regard, even if her, you know, assist numbers are down a little bit, but like, you know, nobody could really score on this team. So you're not going to get assists if nobody else can hit a shot, uh, quite frankly. So, Very true. you know, I think her passing is, is a little bit better than the statistics would kind of lay it out to be. This was her first season playing with like a, an actual, like decent, I don't want to use the term pure point guard, but someone whose kind of mindset is to set someone up like a table setter in terms of Julie Aleman. You know, Erica Wheeler is definitely more of a score first point guard, even though she is a pretty decent passer. You know, it's just she has a different game than Aleman for sure. So anything else you want to add to Kelsey Mitchell? Like it was it was a really good season. I really loved almost everything we saw from her. Well, I mean, you really just need to look at the the basic statistics even just to get a, a, a glimpse of how much better she was in 2020 than previously. Um, like you said, her first season shooting above 40% from two points. She actually hit 50% of her twos, which as you mentioned, um, most of it just came from better finishing at the rim, but also from cutting out a healthy amount of those long two point jump shots, which you know we don't really like those on the show. Yeah. I, this is the first season I think in which Kelsey Mitchell, the game kind of looked like it slowed down a lot for her. We always knew that she could, you know, stop on a dime and, and knock, a, knock shots down from like 25 feet out. But this, it just seemed like she was more comfortable getting her own looks. She was more patient with it. I think maybe that patience contributed to the improved finishing ability and just looked like a, a much more comfortable scoring guard. I don't think, I guess maybe I'm, I'm a little, I was a little too high on her, her playmaking coming into the season because once again, it wasn't that great. But as you said, uh, you need teammates to shoot in order to get assists. And uh, Fever didn't really didn't really have a lot of great shooters on this team. So we'll see what happens going into year four. But for her credit, I mean, the on-off numbers, as, as you mentioned, were were stark. And it, it was very telling. And I don't think that was noise. You know, this team was really buoyed their offense by Kelsey Mitchell when she was on the court. And when she wasn't on the court, it, was, uh, it could have been a bit of a slug. So should we get to this now? Should we get to it later? One thing I want to ask you is, like, would that increase in playmaking – I mean, obviously it's good to be able to create. But, like, does she need that? to kind of be like a, an all WNBA version of herself or, you know, can she just be an elite play finisher, someone with her, you know, her improved shot versatility, her improved finishing inside, her improved pick and roll scoring. And if you combine that with just like being an okay playmaker, like, is that enough for her to be a highly effective player or like, does that need to come around? Uh, you know what? I still, I'd still like to see her become a little bit of a, a better playmaker, a little bit of a table setter for others, because there are a lot of guards in the WNBA who shoot a lot, but finding guards in the WNBA who can, you know, score from anywhere plus set up their teammates is, it's kind of the difference between good and great. You know, I think Kelsey Mitchell is, she's a pretty good offensive player for sure. And, you know, of course her three point shooting is a major, major reason for that or major, major part of that. Um, Still a little bit, I don't want to say one-dimensional, but I would like to see it continue to uh, improve across the board. Granted, the, the two-point finishing was was actually extremely encouraging now that I'm looking at it. Like, maybe she could be, like, borderline, as you said, second all-WNBA if she continues to finish well inside and maybe draw those fouls, you know? And I guess, like, if you look at who's on her team, it's it's like, well, would you rather have Kelsey Mitchell shooting or Kelsey Mitchell passing? Uh, on this team, I'd rather have Kelsey Mitchell shooting. So... I guess it would have to depend on who's around her. So we'll see what happens this season. I mean, she's going to have 
yet another different um, backcourt mate, depending on, you know, who's on the court. But yeah, because Alvin's not playing this season. So we'll see how she compliments Daniel Robinson and their newest draft pick, Kaiser Gondrasek. But I think Kelsey's still got a little bit more in her bag. And it, just for some of the overall numbers, uh, she had a career high in three-point percentage in 2020 at 38.9%, so just a, a hair under 39% from three, down to her career low, actually, in seven three-point attempts per 36 minutes. So I, I, I wonder if there's any correlation there. You know, I, I hope not. I hope she can kind of sustain that three-point percentage with uh, an even increased volume. Um, but she also... Uh, like we mentioned before, 50% from two when she had never cracked 40% from two the previous two seasons. Uh, and that rounded out to a 579 true shooting. So really uh, a terrific offensive season for Kelsey Mitchell. Oh, and um, one more thing, Stephen, about Kelsey. It seemed like in her, her first couple seasons, she was getting a lot of her offense just like settling for jump shots off the dribble. Like that's still a weapon for her because she's got such like a quick release and, and such long range on her shot. But I, I feel like that's just, not a great shot, you know. Maybe it's a good shot for her individually speaking, um, because you could like look like effective field goal percentage and stuff like that. But within a team perspective, you don't need that shot, you know, like like, like just dribbling into a three point a three pointer with 15 seconds left on the shot clock. Do you agree with that? No, I do agree with that, and I think you know the numbers kind of bear that out with her being a lot more effective as uh, those those shots were a little bit fewer and further between, and she okay. she did increase you know in her shot diet more shots coming off screens where, you know, there, I don't think there's a ton of, you know, you mentioned there's a ton of twos in the WNBA that shoot a lot, but twos that can take quality threes the way she can, you know, not just catch and shoot threes. Like they are coming off screens and firing and rising. Yeah. Jump shot uh, versatility yeah, right? in, in motion. So would like to definitely see even more of that. Uh, and, you know, just to continue to kind of round out that part of her game. And you're right. It was the first couple of years, a lot of, just kind of like settling for okay shots and they, they weren't really going in, you know, all that much, uh, mm-hmm. especially from, from the two point range. And, you know, she, she did improve her finishing around the rim in terms of the percentage, but there's another big reason why her two point shooting improved was because those, those were the worst shots that she were taking. She was taking from two were no longer part of her, a regular part of her kind of, uh, her diet there. So, sure. um, Let's move on to Tierra McCowan, I guess. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Kelsey Mitchell later, I'm sure, uh, when it comes to kind of this team's future. But fair to say a bit of a disappointing second season for Tierra McCowan. A bit of a disappointment? I'd say it was a huge disappointment. No holds barred. You know, coming into the league, I think during her rookie season, we, she showed a lot of promise. Just being this massive player who blocked a ton of shots, got a ton of rebounds, got to the free throw line like nobody's business, Raw in terms of like her defensive mechanics and, you know, overall mobility, but there may be some stuff that could have been worked on. Um, I mean, it, it, it seemed like she got worse last year. It did seem like she got worse. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, hubbub, I, I guess, uh, you know, when she, when the fever kind of started this, their first game of the, the year last year against Washington and McCown was coming off the bench. And then, you know, it was pretty apparent why that was because she was, you know, not as effective as she was the previous season. Her offensive numbers, you know, they, they look better, but I think it's it's important to acknowledge that McCowan didn't just like not improve defensively from her rookie season. Like she regressed a lot. She was, her mobility was much better her rookie season, you know, which helped with her kind of 
lack of awareness sometimes in terms of uh, her help responsibilities and stuff like that. And that stuff all kind of took a step back. So it's, I think it's important to talk about why she was so bad defensively, like poor defense, I think can, can often be categorized as like can't, won't, and doesn't know how those kind of three categories. And, you know, the problem for McCowan, at least last year, and, and maybe this will improve over time, but you combined a can't defender with a doesn't know how defender. And it led to a lot of easy opportunities for the other team. Do you remember why I said I, I was high on Charlie Collier's potential defensive impact for Dallas? Uh, no, I don't remember why. Because she, she played for uh, Vic Schaefer uh, at Texas, and Vic Schaefer's previous stop was at Mississippi State coaching Tierra McCowan. And he had her hedging pick and rolls. When I saw this, when I, when I first saw that, you know, while I was watching college basketball, I'm like, what is this? Like, there's no way she's going to be able to recover on time. But – you know, when you, when you think about like what a player needs in order to, what a post player in particular needs to be able to do when she gets to the WNBA level, playing pick and roll coverage is, is definitely one of those things. So long-term I was like, okay, that, that might be an okay idea, but she is still so poor at this. And it's interesting. You, you categorize this as, you know, can't want, and doesn't know how, I don't think it's, it doesn't know how, because she was, she was, uh, like, like I said, in, in college, she was, exposed to different types of pick and roll coverages. I, I, th- I just think it's can't like she just moves so stiffly east to west and her mechanics are just, she's just always like a step behind, you know, it's like, she's never in position at the right time. It seems. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, her, her stiff hips make it a little bit tough to kind of corral pick and roll ball handlers, like really kind of get into a defensive stance and cut off the driving lane to the rim while still having some ability to recover to her own assignment, right? Play mm-hmm. pick and roll defense two on two, right? We talk about this a lot. You know, when you're playing a drop coverage in pick and roll, meaning the roller's defender, the person that's setting the screen, whoever's defending that person, you're giving the ball handler space. You're a couple steps in front of the pick and roll ball handler as a defender to get around the screen, but to not give up the lane and, and prioritize defending the rim is kind of what you're doing there. But if you're, if you're just one, doing that with poor technique, you know, you're standing sideways to allow that. And that's kind of what it was a lot of times where she was almost perpendicular with the offensive player. And it just allowed, uh, and maybe that's just because she didn't think she could kind of recover without being that way, but she didn't recover doing that either. So uh, it, it led to a lot of open opportunities at the, the rim, a lot of fouls from McCowan. She had a very high foul rate per not her own falls, which is high as well, but her following the following the other team. Um, but it's not just, you know, defending the pick and rolls, right? Uh, this isn't, you know, the men's league where there are pick and rolls play after play after play, and they're just going to go at you all the time. It's also yeah. just, you know, when a defender's kind of coming around a screen off the ball and, and you have to recover because your teammate like got caught on that screen. There was, there's just a, a ton of instances where she didn't really move at all. You know, she would just kind of swat down as the person was passing by, or she was very late and that would end up in a fall. So it was, uh, it was a discouraging season defensively to say the least. You know, I don't want to pin defensive struggles on one player because it's, it's never just one player's fault on, on the defensive end. But at center, when you have a, a poor defensive player at center playing significant minutes, that's, 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 that's not nothing, you know. Um, it, it makes it a lot more difficult, especially, you know, for this team, like name the, the good defenders that could make up for that. Yeah, because you, no, you have no good defenders anywhere else. So it's, it, you know, a, a great defensive center will erase a lot of people's mistakes or deficiencies, but a bad defensive center just puts you in such a bind. Um, you, you mentioned the, the fever were, were worst in the league in, in pick and roll defensive efficiency. They were also the, the team that opponents ran pick and rolls against 
the most often. That sounds kind of awkward, but 38.7% of opponents' possessions were pick and rolls. So other teams knew. Like, you, you put them in the pick and roll, it's, it's going to be a layup line. If it's not a layup, it's going to be a foul. If it's not a foul or a layup, it's going to be like an open three. But it's, it's, it's a simple game, you know? And uh, the Fury just did not have the personnel on the interior to defend that action. So let's talk about some of the positives of McCowan's. She was still the best offensive rebounder in the league last year, number one in offensive rebound rate. Uh, her first season, she was actually number one in offensive rebounding and defensive rebounding rate. She was not quite the defensive rebounder last season, but she was still so good at offensive rebounding that she was number one in total rebound rate. So that's, that's encouraging. Um, she did improve her free throw shooting from her rookie year up to 75%, which I think for someone that gets fouled as much as Tierra McCowan does to get from you know the high 60s, low 70s up to 75% is very encouraging. She improved her two-point scoring, 63% around the rim on, on non-post-ups. That's okay, uh, you know, for a player of her size. Maybe you'd like it to be a little bit higher, but when you consider how much she gets followed, you know, the easiest opportunities are not ending up in baskets. They're, they're probably going, her getting to the line, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, so even though her free throw shooting wasn't quite as, like her free throw attempt rate wasn't quite as high as, you know, the astronomical rate it was her rookie season, she was still able to be, overall more efficient than her rookie year because her two-point scoring improved and her free throw shooting improved you know it's funny because when she when she came into the league I think a lot of casual fans look look at her size and her shot blocking numbers it's like wow you know she is going to be a defensive beast a comparison I saw on more than one occasion was she's going to be the next Sylvia Fowles which like I've, I've got no comment on that but um I have a comment you have a comment yeah it's insane <laughs> yeah it's not a good comparison at all but I digress because offensively she was, she was good because you have that kind of pick and roll gravity when she's going to the basket and just having this like freight train coming down at you and her ability to catch and finish and she doesn't catch and finish draw fouls. Fouls are free throws are good. That's good for overall efficiency. So it's, it's kind of funny to see a player who like her reputation is, is a defensive first player who has like no offensive moves. But when you get to the, the WNBA, the priorities kind of shift. You know what I'm saying? So like a, a player of her archetype may not be as affected by defense as she was in college, but on the flip side, offensively, there's more room for her to operate and there's not going to be as many just, you know, like ISO post-ups where her lack of real offensive skill is, is glaring, you know? Yeah. A couple other things about McCowan's game is you'll see kind of just going through it that she makes some okay passes when she's kind of at, at the top of the arc, you know, maybe a place that she's at a little too frequently, quite frankly, given her, her physical gifts and her uh, not very good long two shooting, but 44 turnovers to 14 assists last year. Uh, not very encouraging. You know, she is someone no. who, uh, you know, she's, she's physically imposing, right? She's a tough guard underneath, you know, she's going to be able to score over a lot of players, but a lot of her turnovers were also trying to force it up over, you know, three or four defenders teams are very aware of McCowan's strengths and weaknesses I think an emphasis of, of being able to cut down on those turnovers a little bit and uh, be able to kind of pass out on some of the tougher uh, offensive rebound opportunities and, and stuff like that the other thing you know probably not quite as effective as just like a back to the basket post-up player not someone who has a ton of moves necessarily you know is just kind of relying on on size and strength 54th percentile as opposed to a player, when you compare that to some of the other kind of go-to bigs around the league who are, you know, high post-up 
player, like high volume post up players, you know, McCowan is, is not really in the same neighborhood in terms of her efficiency there. So how are you feeling about her prospects as a starting center long-term in the WNBA? Like, is it completely gone in terms of like, you know, being a complete two-way player? I know two-way players, uh, we shouldn't say it, but you know what I'm saying? Like, can defense come around? Can she make the improvements necessary to not get kind of played off the floor in some of the higher leverage situations? I don't think it's completely gone. I don't think that'd be very fair. I mean, she's heading into her third season. Uh, you don't often see bigs, particularly bigs who are paint bound and, and like quote unquote rim protectors come into the WNBA have immediate success. So I'm, I would be willing to have patience with her. It's just a matter of like how much she can stay on the floor. Like how, how long can you put up with these really bad defensive mechanics? And like, that, I mean, I guess it depends on whether you think uh, this can be fixed with like solid coaching. You know, I don't think she, she's never going to be the, the most mobile player and she's never going to be the most coordinated player. And those two things together, that's, that's kind of a problem if you're six foot seven. But some of this kind of strikes me as, as being fixable. You know, like just getting like a really good front court coach. Like in, in the men's league, it's always, there, there's what the, uh, oh, so-and-so was working with Akeem Olajuwon last season or so-and-so was working with Patrick Ewing last season. And everyone gets all excited. Like, oh my God, he's going to be incredible now. The WMA needs something like that. You know, I don't know if how, how true that stuff necessarily is, but the Fever need to invest in, you know, just developing her skills as a defensive player. I think she can still be a starter. It's just, man, if you compared where we were last year at this point, I was a lot higher on her last year than I am now. So, so I'm... Doing? Yeah, I'm I'm going to just kind of stay where like from that reference point, right? Like the bubble was a weird year, like obviously she was not in the greatest shape conditioning wise. Like I think the path to stardom is still there. Like it it's not necessarily a sure thing. Like I think her her highest supporters still kind of see her as a, a an all WNBA type player. I'm not 100% sure that's the case, but she only really needed to make big improvements from her rookie season as, as opposed to like dramatic improvements from last year. So, you know, if she just kind of gets a little bit better to where she was defensively her rookie year, and then the other stuff continues to kind of round out, you know, she gets, you know, she remains a 75% type free throw shooter is able to turn it over a little bit less. So, you know, when you just compare her mobility from year one to year two, like if you just kind of regress to where she was there and and add experience and, and better coaching or or more coaching even not not necessarily better coaching but just playing in the WNBA more getting more experience uh, and you just kind of you know chalk that up to a, a tough situation where different players handled it differently you know in terms of like the bubble season and stuff like that I can see how McCowan still hits a pretty pretty reasonably high ceiling I think Okay, fair enough. And I, I do have a couple comments on this, but, but we can keep it moving. Um, I'll, I'll address it when we talk about their free agency additions. Okay, let's just get into 2021. They brought in D-Rob. They brought in Jessica Breland. Uh, for all intents and purposes, they brought in John Tell Lavender, um, who they traded for midseason last year uh, with Chicago, but didn't play for them at all last year. Uh, and then they re-signed her in the offseason. They traded for Lindsay Allen. They drafted Kaiser Gondrzic. They traded the rights on draft night for Aaliyah Wilson, uh, not bringing anybody back from COVID absences. Last year, they lost in free agency or trades. Erica Wheeler, Candice Dupree, Natalie Chanwa, Kamaya Smalls, and then, of course, they traded Kennedy Burke. Where should we start with the Fever's offseason and, and kind of coming into 2021? Well, from my perspective, it's, it's almost like they 
they just let a bunch of their vets go for, for greener pastures, if you will, and then just replaced them with more vets. This is still a rebuilding team. Um, and this was a point of, uh, this is kind of a sticking point for us over, over the off season. Cause we were thinking like, why are they handing out these huge deals to Daniel Robinson and, and Jenta Lavender when they're clearly not going to be competing this year? I would have liked the signings if they weren't for like three years in guaranteed money. Right. Three years in, in pretty huge guaranteed good money. Um, yeah. And it, it looked like, you know, this team was kind of going in the right direction, right? Like, Wheeler, Dupree, Achanwa, like they were not going to bring those players back. Those were players who have played a ton of minutes for this team over the past three or so years and didn't really kind of help them win anything. And in some cases, you know, Achanwa and Dupree maybe stood in the way of development of like very important lottery picks that they are hoping to be, you know, future kind of franchise cornerstones, allowing those players to move on and not bring them back. It looked like it was, you know, a healthy decision, a team kind of ready for a new chapter. And then they, you know, signed John Tail Lavender, who this year is going into her age 32 season and has not played in the WNBA since August of 2019 to a three-year protected veteran contract for 175K per year, like almost the lower minimum, essentially. They signed D-Rob also going into her age 32 season when you had this, you know, granted Alamon is, you know, not going to be with the fever for much of uh, 2021, it looks like, but you had a very promising rookie season from a point guard last year you have a at worst combo guard that you just you know ended up drafting at the number four pick uh but d rob three years for a protected veteran contract for 155k per year like do they see these two players starting for them two years from now three years from now i i I don't understand like the process here at all i don't either but relative to 2021 really talk about one season you know so let's just get into what they're going to bring this coming season. Okay. Yeah, sure. So they have depth, I guess. I don't know if I'll, I'll call it good depth or, or not, but they have depth. Um, D-Rob, you know, it remains to be seen about Aleman, you know, if, if she'll come over. They haven't suspended her for the whole season. It's just a partial suspension. So they expect her at some point, it would seem. Gondrazik and, and, and Allen and Doyle, you know, some, some combination playing point guard. Kelsey Mitchell, uh, Gondrazik, I'm sure will play some too. You know, Wilson, Vivian's. Tiffany Mitchell, there, there's kind of a, a lot in the wing rotation. Uh, I don't know how much those players all complement each other, but they're all yeah. there, uh, if nothing else. Uh, I imagine this team is going to play a mostly kind of three-big rotation, right, of two of Cox, McCown, and Lavender on the court at almost all times. Use Breland, I would hope, sparingly as like a fourth big, maybe you know five minutes a game or something like that. I do wish this team had like another – another type of four, like a pure spacing four, uh, a little bit more mobility. You know, Breland is not that despite taking a ton of long twos. Um, they don't really have any threes that can kind of scale up to play a small ball four. But what do you think about that big rotation? Like, do you think, Lav- I mean, uh, Breland is going to play more than I anticipate she will? I do. I do. Because for one, you're still, well, let, let's, let's look at why, they, why, why do you think they signed Jessica Breland? Because I have a theory about this. I think they look, they're looking at this player who's, who a few years ago, you know, maybe not anymore, but a few years ago made all defensive team. Um, she is basically, she was basically making a career in the WNBA being able to defend in all sorts of different schemes on defense, who knows how to play defense and who knows how to, you know, keep her conditioning up and all that stuff. So I think she is going to be that coach on the floor for them. Um, 
maybe well, those, my, my hope is would be that she's be, that coach on the floor from the sidelines. Well, then she's not on the floor. I'm just joking. I'm, I'm messing with you. But what, what I'm saying is, if if they still don't have any patience with, with Tierra McCowan, I don't really see them. You know, I mean, it's not like Lauren Cox is a is a very known quantity yet either. You know, so I I don't think they can get away with playing just a, a three big rotation for better or for worse. I think they signed Jessica Breland to play at least 20 minutes a game. Man, that's bad. That's a if that's the case, that is even an even worse offseason than I thought it would have been. Well, but she, she's not getting the guaranteed money. Or she's not, she doesn't have the long contract, though, does she? No, but still, like, what is she doing for the future of this franchise? Like, how is she helping McCowan? And, like, it doesn't matter how good Jessica Breland plays this year. Like, she's what teaching matters, how to play defense. Yeah, so you, you do that in practice, though. You don't do that in the games. I, I guess, I guess. I, yeah, I, I think there's a little bit of a disagreement here. Like, I, I just, like, you are in the, the rosiest of scenarios. Everything goes right for this team. You're, like, getting the seventh seed. So you're, you're going to play Jessica Breland and John Tell Lavender a combined 35 minutes a game as opposed to letting like figuring out if if you have two pure centers in Cox and McCowan or if those two players can play together you know devoting all of your playing time resources to you know splitting Cox's minutes as a power forward and as a center and figuring out you kind of what leaps McCowan can make defensively and you also have maybe Bernadette Hattar coming over as well who's a good decade younger than Jessica <laughs> Breland and, and not literally a decade younger. She, you know, seven or eight years. It might as well be. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think they do want to compete obviously, but it, it's not the direction I would go. They're in. not, they're not going to be well. Okay. So here let's, let's hold on. Hold on a second. I don't think they're going to be competing. I mean, it's, there's a chance that they're not going to be the worst team. And that's as far as I'm going to go with that. So if you look at it within like the grand scheme of things, like, okay, Maybe playing Breland and Lavner like 20-plus minutes a game both is, is not the best idea. And I, I think they're going to be, like, scaling their – if they do, they'd be wise to, like, scale their minutes back as the season progresses. You see tanking teams do that all the time in, in the men's league, right? You know, they'll, they'll start with their, with their plan of, of getting their vets to set the table and whatever, and then when it's clear that they're not going to make the playoffs, as if that was any secret, then they'll start, you know, magically resting these players and, and what have you. I did want to throw something else out there, though, um, that I think you have in your notes that we didn't talk about. Um, is Lauren Cox a four or a five? Well, that's what I would be figuring out this year. Because like, I think I, she's a five. She played about 35% of her minutes last year at center, 65% of her minutes at power forward. I, I would be kind of getting that to a 50-50 split if I can. I'd rather um, see that just totally flipped. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's worth dedicating a, a fair amount of resources this year you know, in terms of playing time to figure out if McCown and Cox can play together. Okay. Um, you know, if, if Cox is just 36% three-point shooter and, and has a little bit more mobility than she showed last year defensively, can kind of hang with some of the quicker fours. I think long-term her position will be a five, but, you know, you might as well, you have both of these two players for the next couple of years at least. You might as well see if it works. I, I don't think it will. You know, I don't think that'll be the best position for Lauren Cox. Like, I don't think that'll be her optimized, but you should see what you got. I think they probably will. And honestly, I think they probably will more than you and I would like. I think I would be surprised if that wasn't kind of similar year over year. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, Lauren Cox does have a couple things going for her and that one, um, she's the best passing big on this, on this team. And I don't think it's particularly close. And two, I think she kind of gets the benefit of a doubt from last year because she was, she was in COVID protocols, right, for the start of the season, and then she came back, and she was kind of 
did she have an ankle injury or, or some sort of lower leg injury? And she clearly wasn't playing at a hundred percent. I don't think she's, she was ever the most mobile player, but she's still got to step on McCowan in that regard. So I, I think Lauren Cox is, if, if you're looking at individual player development for this franchise, she is like one of the top players you're going to be looking at on this team this, this season, her development. Cause if, if she turns out like to have this breakout season, uh, this breakout second season, if she turns into a good three point shooter, a good stretch big, as you alluded to while playing, you know, acceptable positional defense, I think that's, that, that, that's an enviable scenario, but if she's not, and if it turns out that Cox and McCowan are not compatible in the front court, then I think you got a problem. And then you got to look at reevaluate things as coming off season. Yeah. And I, I do think I give her a little bit of the doubt in terms of, you know, she missed the first four games of the season with, you know, in the, the COVID protocol and missed the last four games after that uh, lower body injury that you alluded to. And, you know, there was mentions on, on some of the, the broadcasts in kind of those early games that her conditioning was not kind of up to where the coaching staff and, and the team would kind of, and probably her as well would like it to be. Uh, and she did show some, some real kind of moments of cement feet, you know, guarding an MME cement and stuff like that, where she just kind of couldn't hang laterally. But yeah, I mean, like, I, I think there's a chance also that it, sh- it should be said that she is a capable three-point shooter and her best position is still the five because she maybe just can't play the four defensively. And that's kind right. of what, what really matters. Um, so, I mean, how, how do you kind of compare the upside of, of Cox and McCowan? Let's say Cox is is more of a five, like that pairing just doesn't work. Is there any chance that Cox surpasses McCowan as this team's like future center or is just like the offensive upside of McCowan just so high that it, you know, Cox just has such a long way to go. I mean, how much higher, how much better can McCowan play on offense? That's my question. Cause right now she's doing it like purely through physicality. And, you know, I have to wonder if like this just isn't her, at least on offense. So if she turns out to like just never figure it out on defense, then I think Cox is actually your starter because like I said, Cox still a little bit of an unknown quantity theoretically. I mean, I mean, I know she's more skilled than McCown right off the bat, both with shooting the basketball and with passing the basketball. But like, if I don't know, I think she can at least be a good defender at the five at the four. I have my doubts, but McCown not right now is not a good defender anywhere. So what is her offense? Cox is just like an unspectacular player. She's not, hopefully going to kind of kill you defensively and create all these kind of like uh, uh, highlight plays of the other team, just getting open layups because she just doesn't kind of know, you know, what to do or or just doesn't have the mobility to to get there. Oh, and on that note, um, I I have to wonder if the fever are going to employ like at least a little more of aggressive defensive scheme. Cause I'm sorry, if I'm a fan of this team and I see your, you have the worst foul rate while also having the lowest turnover rate or opposing turnover rate, sorry, I'm a little upset. Because, like, what are you doing besides just hanging back and getting your butts kicked on every possession? It's, it's not good. I mean, they drafted um, Gondrzyk, who was a, a pretty good defensive playmaker in college, and Aaliyah Wilson, who that was going to be her calling card. So you figure Aaliyah Wilson's going to make this team because, like, they traded – they already traded a good defender for her in Kennedy Berg, so you have to figure they're high in her defense. Like, you got you got to try and create some havoc, right? I hope so. And I, I hope Gondrzyk and, and D-Rob, I think, you know, she'll, she'll definitely – Oh, that's true, play- yeah play uh you know defend the point of attack with a little bit more intensity than than Alaman who you know Alaman got in the passing lanes as well um I I don't think she was the reason why their turnover rate was so bad but Gondrzik this was I think the the most surprising pick of of draft night should we revisit a little bit in terms of kind of what they're getting from this player and 
the, the kind of specific things that, you know, let's, let's say they kind of made the right call here. Like what, what Gondrasik's going to bring to this team. Cause sure. I, I kind of like, you know, I'm not really comparing her to other players in the draft, but just her skill set. I like the specific things that she can bring to this team, whether that's worthy of the fourth pick. I don't know, but you know, I, I like the specific skill sets she could bring. Well, the specific skills, and I'm pretty sure on the same, we're going to be on the same page here, but I'm just going to lay it out. Um, she is really good in transition. She gets out in transition very easily, and she can beat most players on the floor. She can really shoot it. If, if people go onto the screen, she's got a really quick release, catch and shoot, and she can shoot it off the dribble as well. And on defense, she's just a pest. Like, she will get into the passing lanes, as, as you alluded to. Um, is, is that kind of where you were going with this? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, she gets, she gets to the line pretty well. But those things that you, that you laid out there, like jumping the passing lanes, um, you know, creating steals. You know, one, one game I watched of her, she had like four or five steals, and they were all from just jumping passing lanes or uh, anticipation, I should say. You know, jumping passing lanes, I think, has a, a negative connotation maybe that you're gambling too much. But, and she does gamble, I think. But getting out in transition, like this team desperately needs to play with more pace and to be able to finish those transition possessions uh, with pace as well. Uh, and we had mentioned at some point last year, like it didn't really look like there were too many internal candidates that were going to help them really play with more pace. Yeah, that's a good point. So taking somebody that brings somebody in that can help in those areas, forcing turnovers, getting out in transition, uh, a capable not outside shooter, um, and, you know, can get to the free throw line. Like, you know, may, maybe it's a quote unquote reach. Maybe she's not the, the player a lot of people had going there, but these specific skills, this team could definitely use if she's able to translate it to the WNBA. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't hate Kondrasik's game. In fact, I think she's a pretty fun player to watch. The, there are a couple of reasons why I wasn't, I was kind of surprised by the pick. One is because it didn't really, and now that, now that we kind of discussed it a little bit, this might not seem very wise in, in retrospect, but I figured they needed like a really solid defender at the three, like a, like a big three, a, a big wing player, which is still a need for this team, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> Um, and also because, you know, she just wasn't as high in anybody else's draft board. And I think sometimes uh, we people who kind of, we, we kind of have like group think, we're kind of in our own little bubble. Uh, we, we people who look at the draft prospects and try to do mock drafts and all that stuff. And we kind of think, okay, well, no one else loves Gondrasek. So, you know, okay, second round, you know, whatever. And when Tamika Catchings drafted her at number four, we're like, what? Like, why? You've got a need wide open here. But then there's the point of going back to if you're this bad of a team, are you really going to draft for need? Is Gondrasek going to be the best player available at number four? I don't know. Probably not. But she will bring some things that the team does need. It's not like this was a completely nonsensical pick. She may end up being a bust. She may end up being a pretty darn good player. Like I said, she can play in the WNBA. It's just It was just seeing her picked at number four was kind of shocking to me. Can she play with Kelsey Metro at all? Like, are those two completely overlapping as, as kind of straight twos can can they give you enough kind of combined playmaking as uh you know quote-unquote combo guards can gondrasek i mean wh which one of these two would even be the one if they played together uh i think gondrasek is is more of a natural playmaker for others but at the same time like, like she is definitely a player who's going to look for her own shot as well so that's an interesting question that's another thing to keep your eye on because mitchell with the with the season she had in 2020 if I'm Indiana, I, I'm looking to continue to develop her. But Gondor's like, you know, you invested in her at number four. She's going to play. Um, maybe, is she, is she, she going to come off the bench behind Daniel Robinson for a few games while she figures out the WNBA? I don't know. Together, I like their scoring prowess because both of them can just bomb away from three-point range. So you're going to have spacing in the backcourt. 
But playmaking might be a little bit of a challenge because if there's one thing I don't particularly love about Gondrasek's game is kind of the in-between area. Like maybe she gets into the paint, she gets a little too deep into the paint. She just kind of gets swallowed up by these bigger defenses. She's not the smallest guard in her draft class, but I just feel like she's lacking some strength and and, and some – the quick decision-making required of a point guard to, you know – you call it gnashing, right? You know, kind of of probing the defense under there – She's like she like makes her decision. She likes make makes her mind up rather, and she's gonna f- try to finish, whenever she gets below the free throw line. And she had um, some she had some good finishes, and she like I said, she gets to the line pretty decently, but she yeah. does also seem to get her shot blocked a pretty fair amount. Yeah, so that's gonna be something to watch for. But again, not many rookie point guards coming to the league with that skill down pat. So it'll be an interesting combination for sure. Well, so the other thing is like I I don't think Kelsey Mitchell will be a capable point guard defender. Can Gondrasek? Mm-hmm guard the point of attack at all or do you think she'll be more of an off-guard defender i think she can guard the point of attack better than kelsey mitchell can but then again if she's guarding the point of attack then you're not taking advantage of this this off-ball defense right so and that's where i think this this uh this draft for Aaliyah wilson came into play because she's a player who's not going to be asked to score very often but i think she will be able to guard all three perimeter positions so you can throw her at the point of attack or you can throw her off the ball i do expect her to play a lot as well but at what cost? So my other one of my other questions is, like, is Victoria Vivian's healthy now? Because if she is, that's great because she's another really good three-point shooter. If she's not, then that's a problem because you're severely lacking in size out there. You know, I think Tiffany Mitchell is kind of – she kind of is what she is at this point of her career. I'm pretty disappointed she never really has developed a, th- a good three-point shot because she's been an elite free-throw shooter for a while now. And she's a really positive – two-point scorer you know it's yeah. really kind of that one i mean i think just overall shot selection is a little bit oh i completely mistaken she she's a 40 percent two-point shooter so that's uh not at all the case um but yeah the to, to never crack 30 percent even from three uh she's you know not a player that i frankly think is is very effective you know what i mean her her efficiency has never been very good uh it's hasn't cracked 50% true shooting since her rookie year. She gets to the line, like you said, a pretty decent amount and is a 90% shooter when she gets there. But I, I think, you know, she, it's a subtraction by addition, frankly, a lot of the times when she's out there because she doesn't get guarded from, from three very well, and, but she still takes a lot of them and, and doesn't make them. And I think she might've even led the team in usage last year, uh, despite, you know, not being very effective, frankly. Okay, so and, and that's that's a major reason why I thought they would have gone with a wing in the draft, but they didn't. Uh, well, they hopefully, we tra- can, hopefully we can just get a healthy season from Vivian's because right, that would um, solve everything, you know. Uh, but you know, coming off coming off two knee, knee injuries, I'm I, I, I'm I'm optimistic, but I'm not overly optimistic, you know. So cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. That's 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 the term. So um, want to kind of sew this up here? Like, what are we looking at for? Well, what I want to ask you is like, how do you kind of feel about this young core in, in totality? We have Kelsey Mitchell, let's say Alamon for some years, uh, you know, or at least some parts of every year, McCowan, Cox, Gondrzik. Is there, is there anyone else even in this core? You know, Vivian's Wilson, maybe. Is that group like a, a playoff caliber group two years from now? Uh, are they going to have to kind of completely start from the ground up with Kelsey Mitchell and, and maybe one of those bigs. What, what do you think about this kind of group of five, even if they don't all kind of fit together? Uh, I'm not very high on them, to be honest with you. And because like, where's the potential star power coming from? We mentioned Kelsey, like if everything goes right for Kelsey Mitchell, maybe she's second team all WNBA. Well, gosh, I mean, if you put it that way, that's, that's not very encouraging, you know? So, and then McCowan, we spent 
like three hours talking about how what she needs to improve upon. God knows I, can, can I just honestly like if Kelsey Mitchell had the same exact season that she had last year, but the team around her was better, like she would have made second team all. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I'm just saying I, I don't see a, a, a clear bona fide superstar, maybe potential MVP candidate on this team, and that's this is a stars league. That's so I don't know. I this is clearly a young and rebuilding team. I just question what the overall ceiling is, and if that's the case they probably shouldn't be too attached to any of these assets besides Mitchell perhaps, or even just getting as much as you can from Mitchell and really. Right. 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 Cause we, 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 we figure, we figure they're going to miss the playoffs and the plan is to miss the playoffs. So um, you can take a shot at, at Ryan Howard or maybe Nelissa Smith next season who are both going to be better players than like pretty much anybody on this team is right now. So with that in mind, yeah, I think if if neither Cox nor McCowan are the kind of long term answers at the front court, you got to look to deal them. That that's a problem. You know what I mean? Like if you have even one of like if you have Mitchell, Alamond, Gondrasic as like your your three guard rotation, and then one of those players turns out to be pretty good, you know you you're you're cooking with something, right? Okay. Uh, that that's not bad. But if if neither of those players turn out to be any good, if Gondrasic isn't any good, uh, then you know, obviously that that's really bad because you spent three because you yeah. wasted three consecutive lottery picks on it. Um, but uh, I, I think the path to to them this core kind of being something you know I wouldn't write it off completely, but yeah, okay. not not as uh, encouraging as some other young groups out there. Um, let's get to the strengths and weaknesses of this specific team. Uh, strengths, offensive rebounding. Obviously, McCowan is is probably going to lead the league again. And one thing we should note about offensive rebounding is you know it's tough to do that year over year over year, like once you kind of really start to get older as a player, you know, offensive rebounding is extremely challenging. And to do that as like, you know, a 26-year-old, a 27-year-old to be that consistently good at it, uh, we'll see how that aspect of her game ages over time. Um, But right now she's elite, best in the league for sure. Getting to the foul line, you know, because of McCowan and some of the other players they have, um, she's, uh, you know, they're going to get to the line as much as any other uh, team you know, basically uh, with outside of, you know, Vegas and maybe some of the elite offenses for an average offense, they'll definitely get to the line a lot. That's for sure. What what do you have for strengths? Uh, they have Kelsey Mitchell. Yeah, I have that as a strength, having Kelsey Mitchell. You know, there aren't a lot of players like Kelsey Mitchell um, in terms of, you know, like stuff we talked about, uh, her her three-point versatility, what, what she kind of brings as an off-ball player. You know, there was not a lot of positives in terms of year one from Marianne Stanley, but what she was able to unlock from Kelsey Mitchell is, is unambiguously positive, I think. Beyond those, I'm kind of struggling to think of anything. So I, I don't think this is a strength, but it's worth mentioning that relative to where they were last year, you know, they should be able to get out in the open court more. They should be able to play with more pace, get out in transition more. So that it's not a strength, but it, it should be a massive area of improvement. So an improvement. Okay, all right, fair. You know, maybe they can have some decent floor spacing, in certain lineups, you know, if they have oh, yeah, Mitchell, Vivian's Cox all on the floor at the same time, like it can, it can look pretty open. Maybe weaknesses we can get to now because that we don't really have much for strengths, pick and roll defense. You know, anytime D Rob isn't on the floor, it'll probably be a complete disaster. None of these bigs really are, you know, Lavender's pretty good. Breland's pretty good, but none of their players that they should be playing a ton of minutes are, are really going to be positives in pick and roll defense. Maybe Cox can get there. They're going to foul a ton probably still. They're going to allow a lot of points in the paint because they have really poor pick and roll defense in their centers 
and uh, most of their perimeter players are not very good on defense. Uh, <laughs> playing defense is going to be a weakness all around. I don't know. And any other weaknesses? You know, the, the weaknesses are, are... Did you mention defense? Yeah, I think there'll be a bad defense probably. Okay, I agree. <laughs> um, but maybe, I mean, honestly, maybe not. You know, maybe if they just play with two bigs and D-Rob changes things that much. I mean, Vivian's, maybe she can be a solid. There's a lot of things that would have to go right, but any other specific weaknesses? I mean, when you talk about the worst teams in the league, there are going to be more weaknesses than strengths. But just the overall defense, like, is there is there one area of defense they're going to be good at? Maybe they get jump shooting luck. I don't know. Could be. I mean, they, they should be good at defensive rebounding. And, yeah, and, and and hoping opponents miss is, is good jump is is, is good uh, good defense, right? Uh, yeah, like that's so, what the Aces did last year. Hope uh, opponents miss. Other weaknesses, I don't know. Like I, I think you said with the, with the floor spacing and three point shooting, it's it's very lineup dependent. Because if you look at like who's playing in each position, it's so uh, it's so dynamic. Like you have a player in Daniel Robinson who like literally never shoots threes, versus a player like Kelsey Mitchell who is she walks into the gym and she's wide open. Or Tiffany Mitchell versus Victoria Vivians. Or even Lauren Cox versus Tierra McCown. So, I don't know. It, it seems like they, they, they would need to put out the right combination of players to have good floor spacing. And if they're missing, like, even one of those players, it's not going to be great. Yeah, I mean, the Cox-Lavender lineups should be able to space the floor pretty well, even if Lavender's, you know, firing with the, the toe on the line. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's still better than just everybody being in the paint. So, oh, one thing I want to ask you. Are you are you ready to call coaching a weakness for this team, or are you kind of just looking at this team last year? They didn't really have a training camp. They got there later than everybody else. You know, they were dealing with maybe as much COVID issues as as any other team in the bubble. Wheeler, Cox, both missed time. Wheeler ended up missing the whole season. In terms of players, they were expecting to have, I should say. So, yeah. were they just kind of dealt a tough hand last year, or do you think Marion Stanley maybe is not the answer? I hesitate to say after one season, especially a season like the Fever had, that a head coach is not the answer. Unless it's like Luke Walton or something. It's another men's basketball joke. But no, I, I'm not ready to say it. Especially given like some of their players did improve. Like Kelsey Mitchell in particular. If if anything, Stephen, I would worry about a disconnect between, you know, like Tamika Catchings and Marianne Stanley. Like what Stanley wants and what Catchings wants. Kind of what we saw in Dallas these past couple of years. Like with them giving these big contracts to like, players like a Stu and do and then Brian Agra just like not playing them. I, I don't know. It wasn't impressive last year, but that's a difficult environment to like really make adjustments in or, 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 or fight through the, the hand that they were dealt as, as, as you said. So I'd, I'd be willing to give it one more season before I call coaching a significant weakness. I'm with you. You know, I thought it was a worthwhile question to ask. I, no, it is. Yeah. I'm still willing to kind of give Marianne Stanley the benefit of the doubt for sure. In a situation like that, where there was no practice time to not have that kind of the benefit of the same training camp that everybody else has, I think is a, a huge hindrance in kind of what a coaching staff is able to do. So, you know, what do we expect from this team? <laughs> I think a lot of people expect yeah. them to be the, the worst team in the league. You know, like you said, I don't think it's a guarantee they'll be the worst team in the league, but I do think they had a terrible off season and made a bunch of bad decisions that will make, you know, being the best team they could be, a year from now, two years from now, like make that much more difficult because they so desperately wanted to avoid the lottery this coming season, which they probably won't even do, frankly. That's one of those things. Like when I heard Tamika Ketching say, uh, she said something about like, I never want to make the lottery again. It's like, seriously, maybe that's just a competitor in her. Maybe that's just GM speak. But man, I, I think, you know, if you look at the bottom of the WNBA this season, 
there's a path to Atlanta making the playoffs. There's a path to Dallas making the playoffs. There's a path to New York making the playoffs. But I don't think there's a path to Indiana making the playoffs. And that kind of by default, for me, makes them the worst team in the league heading into the season. Do I think they're a lock for the worst team? No. I mean, a lot of different things could happen. Um, it's not like they're completely devoid of talent. It's not like this is like the Tulsa shock of, of like 2011 or something like that, where you're, you're, or, or the Liberty of last year, you know, where, where you're scraping together. Like it, you're, you're, you won two games last year. I don't think the fever are that bad. But relative to everyone else, I just think they have the toughest road to even making the playoffs. So what if what if McCowan just you know is a force offensive and just like kind like pretty bad defensively? Like she's, I mean honestly, like because there's you know you can so be, she reversed to rookie year McCowan basically. Yeah, and maybe is a slightly better defender than that even. Okay. Like could that and you know you we get like a third best big on a good team type performance from Lauren Cox. You know, not not amazing, but a, a solid contributor. Like uh, if that if all that kind of goes well, like could this team make the eight seed or you know does the the fit of uh, D Rob and Jessica Breland kind of suffocating things and Tiffany Mitchell not being like is everything else kind of still working against them so much that yeah I, I think like, there's just there's just too much factoring against them don't, don't you. Yeah, I do. Frankly, you know, trying trying to be the optimist, but I don't. No, that's good. That's good. I like it. I like it. Root root for lottery balls. Just just do that. Yeah, this team should be uh, watching as many Kentucky games as they can. Yes, absolutely. Hoping for the best. Um, Anything else? Should we wrap up here? No, let's uh, let's get this over with. All right, eleven down, one more to go. Thank you all so much for listening. Please, if you want to support the show, you can by uh, subscribing, rating, reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify. You can follow the show on Twitter at Double Down WNBA. You can follow Eric at Nemchok E. You can follow myself at Trinkwald. And we will be releasing the Liberty episode shortly after this one comes out. Thank you all, all so right. much. All right. Take care, everybody.